You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, March 30th, 2020. Coming up for today's feature reports, we have two clips highlighting our locally produced program, Interchange. But first, your local headlines. According to the Indiana State Department of Health, 1,786 people tested positive for coronavirus in Indiana. 35 people died from COVID-19 out of almost 12,000 people tested. These numbers were updated at 11.59 p.m. on March 29th. The Indy Star reports that the final days of the Indiana General Assembly were dominated by legislation that state lawmakers added on to other bills at the 11th hour that did not receive proper vetting. Governor Holcomb vetoed a bill passed by the Indiana General Assembly. This bill sought to reverse a decision by Indianapolis to protect the rights of tenants from predatory landlords. Lawmakers approved another bill that opens a path for charter schools to tap into tax dollars approved by referendums normally intended to help local school districts. The Indy Star reported two efforts failed as the clock ran out on March 11th. One would have stalled mass transit approved by voters in Indianapolis, and another would have potentially removed Attorney General Curtis Hill from office. Proposed legislation Senate Bill 178 was amended last week in the House. This was in response to an Indiana Supreme Court disciplinary case against Hill. This case accused Hill of inappropriately touching four women. A hearing officer said they recommended suspending Hill's license for two months. No resolution was made by lawmakers on the Curtis Hill case before the state's legislative session ended. The Monroe County Council discussed the creation of account lines for use during the COVID-19 emergency during their March 25th meeting. County Attorney Margie Rice said the county received COVID-19 fund relief advice from the state. The direction we were giving, uh, given from the state was to use the already appropriated funds that we have in place because it's early in the year and every unit should already have plenty of money in the budget. So their uh, suggestion to us and Kim Shell clarified, asked some questions, and we got an email from the DLGF, and I know she talked with them personally. Their suggestion and really their direction was transfer already appropriated funds into new so that you can identify um, in one pot of money where you're spending dollars for this emergency. So what we're asking you today to do is create new lines within the commissioner's budget to transfer existing funds that have already been appropriated. We don't have to go through some additional appropriation process. Transfer those into those lines and spend from there. Rice said the council can later appropriate additional funds to backfill the lines. Councilmember Marty Hawk said the usage of funds should be transparent to the public. County Auditor Catherine Smith said the process needs to happen quickly. And so, so just please, as you consider this, have a heart and minimize what it's going to take to get the money from your hands to their hands quickly and with less, the smallest amount of staff possible to do that. We can totally make everything online so people can see the applications. Um, but, uh, and so there's some, there's some software tools that we can use. However, the hands-on tools and the people it takes 
you know, we have a lot of internal control set up, you know, so frankly, so that, that people can't come in and take money quickly. And so we're going to have to circumvent some of that stuff to get this stuff out the door fast. So it has to be a clear application, has to be a clear signature from the county commissioner. And then we will make that check and get it out as soon as possible. County Commissioner Julie Thomas said the process may become less transparent to speed up the distribution of funds. She ensured the funds will be focused towards small local businesses. Council members unanimously approved the account line creations. Council members also discussed transferring County Commissioner general funds into the COVID-19 emergency contractual line. Budget Administrator Kim Shell said commissioner funds are being used to begin distribution quickly. We are moving money within the commissioner's fund. I uh, no, the county general the, fund. The county general right, fund. Right, but the commissioner's department, department or location. That is correct. The commissioner's department. Um, we have to advertise the uh, food and beverage amount at two hundred thousand which and which takes 10 days prior to being approved by the council. So once that then is approved, that the council can then move the approved um, food and beverage monies over into the uh, commissioner's department to backfill what we're going to move in this transfer. Council members unanimously approved the fund transfer. Fifteen cases of COVID-19 were reported at a Johnson County nursing home. Six nursing home residents are in isolation while three are awaiting results. Otterbein Franklin Senior Life worked with the state health department to test 10 residents who were showing symptoms or had direct contact with people who previously tested positive. Of the 19 people who were tested, seven tested positive, while 12 nursing home residents tested negative. Spread of the virus in nursing homes is now a concern in both Indiana and the rest of the country. The Indy Star found that about 73% of Indiana's nursing homes have been cited for failed infection controls in the last three years. Indiana Daily Student reports the IU Police Department shut down three parties on Saturday night. Enforcement came because partygoers did not follow the CDC's recommended practice of social distancing and Governor Holcomb's stay-at-home order. IUPD tweeted, quote, Parties are not considered an essential activity, end quote. IUPD said it wants to remind people to stay home and practice social distancing. A 37-year-old man died in an ATV crash in Bloomington Saturday. The Indiana State Department of Natural Resources said David Decker Jr., was driving on a four-wheeler at around 9.30 p.m. Friday night. He was driving on private property in a wooded area when he lost control of the ATV. He was thrown from the vehicle, suffering head and chest injuries. He was then taken to Bloomington Hospital, where he was pronounced dead Saturday morning. While the cause of the crash is under investigation, DNR said Deckard was not wearing a helmet. Up next, we have a brief feature about economic pressure for a local service industry worker and renter from our producers of Interchange. We spoke to a local service industry worker and renter this week about economic pressures he's facing along with other local workers during the COVID-19 crisis. He chose to remain anonymous due to the rent strike organizing he is doing with neighbors on Bloomington's west side. Here is his story. I'm a service worker. I uh, I work on a crisis line, among other things, and I take a lot of calls from people. At my own job, 
we are going down to a skeleton staff. So while I still have my job right now, my hours are likely to be cut. So I'm worried about paying rent. On the other side, with the clients that I've been working with, I've been taking lots of calls of people who are normally... Normally it's a domestic violence hotline, but the large volume of calls that we've been getting have been people who just are really worried that they're not going to be able to afford their rent, they're not going to be able to pay housing, and even with the moratorium on evictions that Indiana has um, issued, it's really not helping the problem because people need their rent money for food, so they are still trying to pay their rent because even though they can't get evicted if they don't they will still have to pay that money eventually and they'll go into a lot of debt so so the moratorium on evictions really isn't providing any relief to people who need to be spending their income on food and other essentials in this time even though the the federal government is and the state governments are mobilizing to do things like stopping evictions they are really doing very little to help the real economic situation of the people who are struggling through this. Right now, housing is really the first issue that's affecting a lot of people. Thousands of IU students just got evicted from student housing, and rent for people living in Bloomington is their, for most people, it's their biggest expense. So people are losing their jobs, and they're being laid off due to closures because of the coronavirus. Rent is a big piece of the pie of the income that they have to survive and to get food. So that's why so many people are organizing around rent and talking about how, you know, in this emergency time, we can't pay our rent. Yeah, so right now to move forward with this and start thinking about what we can do as a community to relieve the huge rent payments that so many people face. The first thing that I've been doing and that many people I know have been doing is simply just talking to neighbors, making use of neighborhood Facebook groups and other lines of communication because there's a huge number of people right now that are really struggling financially while the economy is stopping. Lots of people in apartment complexes are working to get makeshift tenants unions started. I would say that for anyone interested in this struggle that's starting to happen, just start talking to your neighbors and start posting on social media. I know that the Bloomington Mutual Aid Facebook page has thousands of people on it and it's a really good center for communication about this sort of thing. So if something's going on in your neighborhood, regarding rent, that's a great place to start talking about it. Even if people don't pay their debt, they're going to have to pay it later. And we're, you know, spiraling towards a recession. Think about, you know, new possibilities for how we can approach this crisis together as neighborhoods, as apartment complexes. The thing to do is just to reach out to people because many other people are in the same situation. Up next, WFHB correspondent Braden Lentz gives an update on how coronavirus has impacted Italy. Around the world, there are more than 723,000 cases of expected coronavirus. The United States now sees the worst numbers at well over 150,000 proved cases reported in all 50 states. 
Before COVID-19 became huge in the United States, China was the first country with a reported pandemic. Then COVID-19 spread to Italy. Italy is the worst hit region of the coronavirus in the continent of Europe. Several Italian citizens have now passed away in the tens of thousands with more than 97,689 confirmed cases reported in the northern and southern parts of the country. According to CNBC, Although the country is under full lockdown, the cases, deaths, and recoveries are still rising with fears that the coronavirus could furthermore attack parts of the more vulnerable regions in the south. Although the industrial north half of Italy was the first to be reported with COVID-19 back in late February, quarantine measures were ordered in the north, north of Italy, while in the south more people are returning home, possibly spreading the virus with more cases to be rising in the coming weeks. Next on Interchange, we will be talking about how the hardest hit regions of Italy are feeling the impact from an economic, political, commercial, and lifelong perspective with clear insight on how the country, like so many others, are dealing with being in the moment. For WFHB, I am Brayden Lentz, and stay safe. Up next, we have an excerpt from Interchange's episode on pandemics and panopticons. The Interchange crew looks at the local effects of COVID-19 in and around the major cities of Italy, and then they widen their view to try to see the socio-political impacts of governmentality in the face of a crisis like a pandemic. You can never hold back spring You can be sure I will never stop believing the blushing rose. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on pandemics and panopticons, and our guest for part two is artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul. We're discussing his recent thinking on the way capitalism and state power is already making moves to instrumentalize the responses to COVID-19 and the ways we might come together to reimagine new modes of living. Baby, you can never hold back spring. It's a kind of paradoxical moment, um, in a sense, because it, uh, you know, in a way that the virus uh, operates almost as a as a kind of general strike, right? It's just the kind of uh, global suspension of the of the economy, not under the terms that we would have wanted, of course, but it, it nonetheless creates a context under which this kind of historical progress of capitalism has been, you know, definitively kind of interrupted in this moment, right? Even though, again, it, it, it's not under the terms of kind of worker organization or these kinds of things, it nonetheless, I think, kind of offers us all an opportunity to really rethink uh, through kind of the logic of work and the logic of profit and all these kinds of things. And in this kind of slowing down, reconsider just, just very fundamental things about the way we live, how we spend our time, uh, what's expected of us, uh, et cetera. Yeah, it's a dangerous time too, though. It's a key key aspect of your piece, uh, again, is that this is an opportunity, as all things seem to be, an opportunity for capitalism and state power as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this is a point I, I borrow from from the philosopher Michel Foucault, who, you know, who wrote a lot about actually the plague and um, really kind of thought through how the plague became an opportunity for governments in particular to institute all new kinds of kind of disciplinary measures. So uh, thinking about surveillance of neighborhoods and kind of various controls of the population and things like this. And the, the plague historically was the moment in which this kind of new, this new kind of governmentality uh, came to be. 
And I think, yeah, in this moment, we also need to be very, very aware that even though we're kind of in this interlude of the pandemic is, is kind of what I call it, that we nonetheless might see um, all these new forms of control emerging. You know, we've we've lived in a historical moment where we've been seeing many new kinds of control emerge around NSA surveillance and all these new kinds of digital forms of uh, governing and power. But I think now we're seeing so many new measures uh, roll out almost by the day that there's a real danger that that these new kinds of digital technologies and network technologies could really be kind of instituted in a way that it'll organize our society. And I think we need to be very, very attentive to that and, and also kind of imagine what forms of resistance might might look like in response to that. Uh, one of the things you say about this, and you just mentioned it a bit there, I suppose, is the the kind of forms of digital subjectivity that, that are creating what you call two kinds of uh, mutually constitutive subjectivities. You want to talk about those? So maybe I'll try to describe what I wrote very quickly. Um, sure. But then I also want to provide a, a, a slight kind of elaboration because, you know, um, since writing it and kind of putting it out there, um, I've thought a little bit more about kind of the way that there might be some problems in framing it this way. Let's just put sure, it that way. Okay. So, so on the one hand, you know, I think many of us right now are having this experience of being stuck at home and being in various states of kind of self-quarantine and something that's immediately accompanied that. And that's certainly in, in, you know, my experience as a kind of university professor is that they close the university and then immediately um, they expect you to start working online. Right. And so yeah. it actually is, you know, it's not a missed opportunity at all. There's been this uh, kind of long kind of historical pressure to move people to teach online because it's more profitable and uh, for the university, et cetera. And so universities in particular seem to be seizing upon this moment to institute new forms of digital labor and kind of reorganize the way we think about education um, online. And of course, this is happening across many, many different kinds of uh, industries and, and parts of the economy. It's not just people in education, of course. And so we see this mass migration to kind of pushing people to labor online um, instead of in their offices, et cetera. And so this in, a, in the piece I call the, the domesticated connected subject, right? The person that is expected to kind of stay at home and, uh, you know, maintain their distance from society, but at the same time, stay connected to the digital economy. Of course, that's out of a certain practical necessity um, in, in the kind of immediacies of, of uh, the, the pandemic that we're in. The reason that I think it's important, again, to track is that I think that this could be uh, part of kind of the reorganization of the way we think about work on a very fundamental level, and that we could think about this this kind of reorganization of labor as, as really outlasting the pandemic and as being a new structure of the, of the economy. And then and the, the second uh, subjectivity that's paired to the first is, of course, the figure that has to kind of reproduce the domestic situation. And so, of course, if all of us are staying home and are not going out and are not interacting with the world, there's this kind of second class of precarious uh, subjects, which, in fact, instead of being kind of decelerated and, and not moving around anymore, come to move at incredible speeds, right? So these are the delivery workers and the trash collectors and the uh, ambulance drivers and all these people who now are expected to never stop moving and, you know, really to their own peril, having to uh, expose themselves to the virus potentially, uh, but also to deal with, you know, unprecedented demands uh, to do more orders, uh, to uh, keep up with new schedules, et cetera. And of course, this is equally like the, the condition of possibility of, of so much of this kind of Amazon uh, economy is that it can be kind of distributed across many, many different kinds of networked delivery drivers and people on bikes, et cetera. And so the digital labor that's happening in the home gets connected to this kind of digital precarious labor on the street. In the immediacy of, of the pandemic, and as you know, it feels like every day is a year now, <laughs> there's uh, so much happening. Um, but we can already see that these two kinds of subject positions are really, really coming to define a lot of the ways that we think about economic life. The, the caveat I want to say, and the, the thing I didn't 
think I expressed clearly enough in the piece is that, of course, this is a kind of characterization of life in the metropolis in particular. So this is a kind of urban depiction of what's happening in the course of the pandemic. And the, a third subject position that, that we might characterize as being necessarily related to these other two is just the, the kind of abandoned subject. You know, the person that basically has no life in the digital economy, either cannot work from home or cannot work in, in this kind of precarious mobile position and is just kind of left to fend them for themselves and, you know, by whatever means necessary. And so mm. I think that really characterizes a lot of the response where you're not seeing really any relief or attention paid to kind of how people are going to survive economically um, that aren't able to kind of transform their labor digitally. Um, and so I think that's certainly the case for for many in kind of the working class in the United States, but but it's even more so the case in, in the global south and these other places that uh, where they don't have uh, this kind of network economy really instantiated. So I think it's a kind of uh, three part structure and uh, we'll we'll see how it kind of elaborates. But I think we're already at a point where this this is becoming a new kind of normal in the pandemic. The first one, domesticated, uh, connected, um, seems, uh, I suppose, uh, protected in some ways by their economic function. I think uh, at the same time as as being integrated in their separation, I think is a term you, you might have used in there. Um, and the second one being sort of exposed to the pandemic and by their economic function. Um, and I suppose the, the abandoned ones being left for dead. That's right. I mean, it's a, you know, I think when we talk about uh, the management of populations as like a concern of politics, this is what we call, you know, biopolitics. Um, typically, we thought of this as like the organization of care. So we thought about, you know, who deserves health insurance, who deserves what kind of health insurance, you know, how much money are we going to give to hospitals nationally? And, you know, if we do, it, it's a kind of calculation, right? So if we mm -hmm. give certain kinds of funding, certain numbers of people will die, etc. This is like a part of how we think about biopolitics and a lot of people, how people thought about sovereignty um, in general in the 20th and early 21st century. Um, but now I think, you know, as others have written, we might be seeing a kind of transformation uh, occurring where it's less about this idea of kind of caring for the population and what it means to try to preserve or let live. And, and the paradigm might be shifting to something on the lines of kind of what it means to kind of let die or to neglect or to abandon. Mm -hmm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on pandemics and panopticons, and our guest for part two is artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul. We're discussing his recent thinking on the way capitalism and state power is already making moves to instrumentalize the responses to COVID-19 and the ways we might come together to reimagine new modes of living. I will never stop believing. One of the interesting things here, too, is, uh, and this has been going on for some time, uh, but now it's, uh, as you say, ramped up so that every every day is a, a, a seems like a decade of, of time has passed. But the idea of uh, not having labor sites anymore, you know, we don't work anywhere in particular. So as uh, you call this a deterritorialization of labor, so loss of sites of labor and so sites of dissent as well, sites of participation, sites of collective being. We're going to have to figure out new ways to be together to to sort of stand against these things. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, that's the kind of historical moment we're in. And so, you know, if we think of this moment as kind of the moment of control of kind of the instantiation of digital control, um, we need new kinds of resistance that we can imagine in that space. You know, I think 
if before we had lived in a kind of disciplinary society where, for example, the organization of the economy happened in the factory and your economic life occurred within this confined space, you know, we have this whole kind of uh, routine way of thinking about what resistance looks like in that context, uh, the strike, the work stoppage, uh, sabotage, these other kinds of things that have occurred historically. Uh, but for digital forms of control, we still have very few models of resistance, I think, at this stage. And so that, I think, is one of our central tasks, right? I think you mentioned before this idea of the domesticated connected subject as being the kind of privileged subject in this circumstance. And that's absolutely right. I mean, I think they're the ones that are going to kind of economically succeed in this new context. Uh, but nonetheless, that that subject is also kind of immersed in all these new forms of control, precisely when the home becomes the place of work and the place of kind of economic production. It also becomes a new site of surveillance and a new site of kind of control. And so we're already seeing in Israel and in Italy in particular, I think they're already uh, doing mass surveillance of um, cell phone locations, kind of making sure that people are maintaining their their self quarantines in their home. And if you, mm -hmm. you know, if they see your cell phone going out of where you live, um, you'll get text messages telling you to report to the hospital and things like this. And I know there's been discussions of doing this in the United States as well, though it hasn't happened yet. Um, with applications that that involve working from home, uh, this also involves typically surveillance of everything you're doing on your computer. <laughs> so you know, right. there's uh, some dystopian examples I was reading about where some of these kind of work from, work from home applications, where you kind of you know telecommute or whatever, um, even do things like take regular pictures from your webcam to make sure you're mm. sitting at your computer and you're not you know cooking lunch or whatever. <laughs> so you know, it's a uh, it, it's a kind of instantiation, a, a reorganization of the way we think about how work is controlled and how work is organized. And so, um, yeah, in a moment where we can't necessarily kind of gather in the streets anymore or shut down a factory in a strike or, or this kind of thing, um, it's really a moment that requires a, a new imagination of resistance and a new imagination of solidarity in particular. Well, let's shift then, um, or I guess let's let's look into ways in which we can think about that resistance. You've written a piece called 10 Premises for a Pandemic. Uh, and I like something you say within that that piece as well. You The intention to uh, hopefully work to render capitalism and the state obsolete. Uh, so let's dive into those now too. Uh, so number one, and I'll paraphrase some of these and you can give some uh, description and meat, I suppose, to them as well. Uh, number one is that a pandemic is a social relation mediated by viruses. Uh, and I suppose uh, numbers two through 10 kind of unpack that a little more fully, but what do you mean by that? That, that kind of argument is an attempt to politicize uh, the pandemic. And what I mean by that is not, not to kind of instrumentalize it or, or you know, just use it as a tool, but to really understand that the pandemic isn't something that simply happens to us or, or that we are all kind of somehow equally victims of this kind of natural disaster that's occurring, uh, but rather to kind of insist that the pandemic is, is actually produced or, or the, the effects rather of the pandemic uh, really depend on how we kind of behave and decide to act together in this moment. And so rather than understand the pandemic as just a kind of inevitable thing that's occurring, uh, it's really our, I think, political and ethical responsibility to really understand how the ways that we choose to live our lives now um, will actually change history and will change the way the pandemic unfolds. And I think that we we really have to take that seriously. Uh, number two, uh, because we're in a state of suspension, we ought to take this opportunity to question the world prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, look at where we've come from. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, um, this, this actually isn't entirely uh, unique to the pandemic, but this kind of suspension of social and political and economic norms um, is something that people in power often do uh, when they want to kind of defend power. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, September 11th is the kind of paradigmatic example of this, where, you know, the argument goes that in order to defend democracy, we need to kind of suspend all of the rights of democracy, right? And so this is the logic of things like the Patriot Act and everything else that um, we kind of can suspend uh, suspend the regime of rights and respend, suspend the regime of politics in order to defend these things. And we're, we're obviously in, in a similar moment today where um, the kind of, you know, uh, everyday order of our society has been entirely thrown out the window in, in, in effort to kind of make sure that on the other side of the pandemic, we still have the same kind of political system and same social system. And so I think for us, the, this is a, this is a unique opportunity in the sense that, uh, if, if it's the case that these things are kind of arbitrary, like if it's the case that these things are historical and have been produced in a particular way and can be suspended in, in this way, uh, as we have in the pandemic, then it's kind of on us again to to understand that uh, we can produce the world in a different way um, mm. that kind of system of representative democracy that we have and the economic system of capitalism are not the only possible systems of of living and even though they they may seem like inescapable and may seem like there's no alternative um, when they're suspended in this way in these times of crisis it kind of exposes how other ways of living are possible again it's it's not to romanticize the pandemic I think it's important that we don't romanticize this period um, but it is nonetheless crucial that we understand that, uh, this reveals um, the way in which we can we can live differently. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Brayden Lentz, Kate Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Doug Storm and Interchange. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. Send inquiries to news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 